Polycystic ovarian syndrome, also known as PCOS or PCOS, is confusing to both the people living with it and the health professionals managing it. In fact, the medical community is still learning about PCOS. Today, Hannah chats with Dr. Shaylee Isles, an obstetrician and gynecologist, to help us understand what PCOS is and what can be done to help manage the symptoms. On today's episode, we're discussing polycystic ovarian syndrome, commonly known as PCOS. Now, PCOS is a syndrome, and for those who may not be aware, a syndrome is basically just a group of symptoms that consistently occur together. In PCOS, the symptoms that make up that constellation that we see can be things like irregular periods, obesity, insulin resistance, uh, infertility, and something that we refer to as hyperandrogenism, which basically means higher levels of the quote-unquote male hormones that cause things like acne and increased body hair. Now, that's very much a simplification of what is quite a complex medical condition. So to help us understand PCOS a bit better, I'm joined again today by Dr. Shaylee Isles. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for asking me, Hannah. And you've been already on one episode with us, but just for those who don't know, you're a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist in Newcastle. That's right. And I'll just get you to tell us a bit about yourself again. <laughs> okay. Well, I still have four children. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> I haven't lost any of them yet. Um, and three cats and a crazy hectic life that comes with juggling all of those things. So I guess I've kind of given... Uh, probably not a very good definition of what PCOS is. What would you, how would you explain PCOS? Um, yeah, PCOS, or I'm going to call it PCOS um, yep. for short, only because that's easier. And <laughs> saying polycystic ovarian syndrome multiple times, I can guarantee I'll get those words tied up. <laughs> so um, it's a really, really common endocrine disorder. So an endocrine disorder is um, a condition that's caused by changes in hormones. So hormones are chemical messages in your blood that are made by one part of the body and act on another part of the body. Body. And it's the it's really the name's not really reflective of the condition because although it's called polycystic ovarian syndrome, the ovarian part is only part of it. It's a really complex reproductive metabolic condition, um, and it can have sort of emotional implications as well. Okay, it's it's common, so really common. Somewhere around about ten percent of women of reproductive age, and even more common in our indigenous population. So up to one in four indigenous women have this condition. Um, so it's actually more common than type two diabetes, which would be the yeah. endocrine condition that most people would be aware of. Yeah. Okay. And I would imagine probably a lot of people haven't heard of. PCOS, so. Oh, absolutely. And it's because up to 70% of young women won't actually receive their diagnosis. So we know, just like type 2 diabetes, there are many, many people out there in the community who have this who don't actually know about it. Like you talked about, there are lots and lots of concerns that PCOS can cause, and we know it is associated with obesity, it is associated with infertility, um, and PCOS is the number one cause of female factor infertility. It can cause complications in pregnancies, including increased chances of miscarriage and increased rates of um, problems with the baby. It's associated with diabetes, and particularly young onset diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, it's associated with heart other, and other cardiovascular health problems, associated with mood disturbances and and overall can be associated for poorer quality of life wow okay so what i'm hearing is very common and quite complex <laughs> absolutely so it's not just about ovaries yeah. it's really a whole body disorder mm. and that and that's why it's so important yeah and when is it usually picked up so i think the reason why gynecologists mostly get involved is because 
there, there are two main ways that people present and probably the most common way is women who are trying to have a baby and who aren't falling pregnant. Uh, and the other way is women whose periods are irregular and that's bothering them enough to present for care. So there are many, many women out there in the community whose periods are irregular who just manage it and get on with their lives and it doesn't bother them. And that's probably why many women are underdiagnosed. I see. And is it something that kind of runs in families? Like if So we don't know entirely what causes it, um, but we do know that there are strong family links. So for women who have a sister who has the condition or whose mother has the condition, they've got about a 50% chance of also having PCOS. So, uh, but there's no specific gene that we know yet that we can go, it's this gene that causes it. So it's probably like many genetic things, complex and multiple genes that mm. are involved. Um, we do know those families also have higher rates of type 2 diabetes. So okay. endocrine disorders are running through those families. Yeah. And my understanding too is that there can also be a whole bunch of environmental factors that can contribute to yeah, that. Certainly we don't know a great deal about it and, and part of that is why um, in Australia we've had a really big government-funded project over the last five years um, which has been run through the uh, NH and MRC, so the National Health and Medical Research Council, where they were funded to the Centre for Research Excellence in Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome. Um, and the first thing that they've done is uh, formulate, done this great worldwide consultation evidence-based guideline about polycystic ovarian syndrome, which was published in 2018. And this has been um, approved by numerous international organisations. And this is the first time that this has actually existed. And we've now got really good evidence-based information about what it is and how, how to look, look, look out for it, what to do about it. Yeah, okay. That's, that's so good. So... Obviously, if there's all these different components to this syndrome and not everyone has every component, how do you actually identify PCOS? So I guess part of that is looking at how you identify it. And the second part of that is looking at why. Why, why is it important to make a diagnosis? So I guess I'm going to do the second bit first yep. <laughs> and look at why, why, why is this matter at all? Um, so we know, as we talked about, it's the main cause of female infertility. But really the bigger issue is the lifelong metabolic impacts that women with PCOS um, have greater chance of experiencing and particularly the cardiovascular impacts. So we're looking at problems like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, overweight and obesity and later on in life heart attacks, strokes and the things. So it's really serious medical conditions and this is a group of the population that have higher chance of those medical conditions. The other thing that they're at significantly greater chance of is looking at disorders of glucose. So most people know about diabetes um, and that type 2 diabetes that sets on in life uh, later on in life but these women are at greater chance of that and also greater chance of getting it earlier in life and yeah. a lot of the problems with diabetes are when you have them over a long period of time so if you get it earlier in life you run into a greater chance of running into those complications we know that women with polycystic ovarian syndrome have higher rates of mental health disorders particularly depression and anxiety. And there's a whole lot of other associations as well, um, things like obstructive sleep apnea, endometrial cancer, so cancer of the uterus, body image, psychosexual dysfunction, disordered eating and yep. the like. So this is a condition that has sort of this whole of life impact across all mm -hmm. ages. It's not just associated with fertility and having a baby, even though that's often the first time 
when it gets diagnosed. So then we look at how do you diagnose it? There's a thing called the Rotterdam criteria and the new guideline, the new international guideline has ratified that as the right way of making a diagnosis. And it's got three components and you need to have two out of the three. to to receive a diagnosis one is ovulation dysfunction and so women can have what they think is regular cycles having a period every four five six weeks but they're not ovulating regularly so uh, ovulation dysfunction is the first criteria some women with ovulation dysfunction get much longer gaps between their periods two months three months even longer but it doesn't you know there can be some women who think that they're getting a period every month but still have disordered ovulation. A particular ultrasound appearance, which is polycystic ovaries, and what that means is multiple little cysts around the edge of the ovaries, which is seen on a transvaginal ultrasound. So, And there are very specific criteria about the number of cysts and the location of them on the ultrasound in order to meet that criteria. And the third one is, as you talked about in your introduction, the the clinical or biochemical androgens. As you talk about, androgens are hormones which you more commonly known as male hormones and most people have heard of testosterone, which is the hormone which is very commonly causes many of the body changes in men. Uh, But women have testosterone as well. Um, And there are a number of other androgens that are made by the ovaries, made by the adrenal glands, which are little glands that sit on top of the kidneys, um, are made by body fat. Um, And women with polycystic ovarian syndrome either have the clinical experience of those androgens, and for women particularly, that's um, acne. Um, But often acne disproportionate to what everybody else in their age group or genetic background has so particularly acne on the chest or the back rather than facial acne of the teenage years or um, body hair patterns that are different to what you would expect from your family background yeah but for some women they don't actually have that physical appearance but when you do the blood tests you go the level of those hormones in their blood are higher than you would expect yeah okay so hopefully people are getting the the idea from your very you know comprehensive answer that this is not a super straightforward diagnosis to make all the time. No, not at all. And and there's another confounder as well which is that many of those things are normal in adolescence. Yeah. So it's really important to be aware of the potential for this in in young women, but to know that acne in particular is common in adolescence. Um, Irregular periods is common in adolescence. That particular ultrasound picture is reasonably common as well in the population. And so that ultrasound picture alone isn't enough to make the Mm -hmm. diagnosis. And um, it's common enough that in the guideline it recommends that within the first eight years of period starting, you don't use the ultrasound criteria at all. Right. Okay. Okay. So the criteria is different for young women, you know, women in their teenage years than it is for women over the age of 20. Yeah, okay. So very complex, not at all straightforward. (laughs) No, not at all. And I guess just before when you were mentioning why this is so important because of all those potentially, I guess, significant complications or Mm. things associated with uh, PCOS, as a gynecologist, I guess you're just part of the puzzle or part of the team that would manage these kind of things absolutely so um very commonly women um it's their general practitioners 
who make the diagnosis or who at least flag that this might be a potential. And I certainly do see some women who are referred in going, is this the answer? Is this what's happening? But it's also really, really important to go, my role as a gynaecologist is specifically to look at the fertility aspects, if that's relevant for a particular woman. And we know certainly not all women want to have babies so yeah. <laughs> for a large number of women in the community that's the fertility aspects entirely irrelevant but also you know looking at managing irregular periods but most of the rest of the health effects and health screening is best done in primary care so best done with a regular GP. Yep and obviously if there's that question about is this PCOS and someone comes to you how do you go about I guess What's the process you go through to work that out? Yeah, so I guess often often the, there's always a reason. When somebody goes to see a doctor, there's a reason. There's always something to go, this is the question I have, this is the symptom I have that I want to know what's causing this or this is causing me a problem, how can I manage this? So the main thing is always to work out what's the priority of the woman that I'm talking to. Are we talking about fertility? Are we talking about period management? Are we talking about excess acne hair growth what's their goals so what what their priority is I would you know take a history looking at their priority Um, you would look at other things about their other medical conditions and other risk factors associated with um, and and looking at other things that might be relevant so there are some other conditions that can present similarly to this that aren't polycystic ovarian syndrome yeah and Everyone who goes to a gynecologist, they usually go with the expectation that they will have a million questions asked of them. Is a a physical examination, is that part of what you would do in these situations too? Yeah, look, always, you know, if you come and talk to me about this, I'm going to ask you lots and lots of questions about your periods, how often they come, how often they don't come, how, um, but I'm also going to ask lots of questions about acne, about hair growth. Very rarely women with excess androgens get this sort of female pattern hair loss. I'm going to ask about sort of headaches and vision changes and that's looking for other things that can cause it. Asking about diet and exercise, um, which is another common cause of irregular periods. Examination is probably more looking at things like acne and hair growth rather than specifically looking at the pelvic organs. So a pelvic examination isn't going to be able to feel polycystic ovaries. So... um, more it's looking at the skin changes and looking at evidence of androgens, um, looking at weight and, and you know, b- body size and mm. things like that. That's yeah. where sort of clinical examination is most useful. Yeah. So it, it really is like a whole system, a whole body approach to... Absolutely. And, and looking at what your current priorities are, but also looking at longer term what the potential health impacts of this condition is mm. and how you manage that to reduce those potential impacts over the whole life spectrum. Yeah. And so if somebody is diagnosed with PCOS, so they fulfill two of those three criteria you were mentioning, are they like, do they then have it for life? Yeah. So this is something that they've always had. Uh, And this is something they will always have. It's onset comes after puberty, after the ovaries start being hormonally active. And, And this is something that you know, that increased tendency will last to menopause and beyond. Um, So again, this is a chronic condition that you need to manage depending on what the goals of the time are, but also looking at your background risk factors and looking at the other risk factors that you have, you know, in your your health to to manage it to reduce your chances of those longer-term metabolic complications. Sure. And so when it comes to 
treating or managing PCOS, what are we actually trying to achieve? So I guess, I guess the, the, the two biggest issues with PCOS um, are that life, lifelong cardiovascular risk yep. so, and, and the lifelong diabetes risk. Okay, when you look on a population basis for women's health, both of those things have a huge impact and a huge impact in terms of health and well-being later on in life. So women with this diagnosis of PCOS, the recommendation is annual health screening with the GP. So at the and and this is why it's one of those situations where you go find a good GP that is the right fit for you Mm -hmm. that you feel comfortable talking to and working with them over time to manage your health and well-being. At the time of diagnosis, they'll look at doing diabetes screening, look at looking at your cholesterol levels, doing your blood pressure check, giving you advice about lifestyle management with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and then on that annual review, looking at how are we managing your periods? Is fertility relevant for you or not? How are we managing your other risk factors to keep you healthy and well? Yeah. And you just mentioned lifestyle factors. And I guess that's one of the really important parts of PCOS and how it's addressed. What kind of things can people do to manage their symptoms just from a lifestyle point of view? Yeah, I guess the, the biggest thing is making the diagnosis. Yeah. Um, we do know that androgen hormones do genuinely make it easy to put on weight. And yeah. all of us know that losing weight is difficult. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and none of us have the miracle answer to that. Um, as a general rule, it, when making the diagnosis and, and aiming to prevent weight gain yeah. is more important than have focus on weight loss. There's more and more a move into the focus on that healthy at every size perspective. So rather than focusing on a number on the scale, look at how can I be the healthiest person I can be at whatever weight I am. Um, Lots of the uh, evidence talks about the role of weight loss and we know particularly at this time of year weight loss is <laughs> everywhere in the media all the time and there's a different diet or a different plan that is the miracle cure every month and we know none of them work and all of them result in short-term weight loss and followed by regaining of all that weight and an extra 10 yeah. percent so really having a consultation that focuses on you should lose weight is pointless yeah. for everybody and really more of a focus on what are your goals for maintaining health and well-being how can you be active how can you make sustainable choices in your life to be healthy to try and prevent weight gain and we know that even small changes in that health and even small weight loss changes which do follow on by people making healthier choices can significantly improve particularly the ovulation dysfunction and can have a significant improvement in fertility for those women for whom that's important yeah and that's a a super helpful way of thinking about it because yeah it's really easy to say go and lose weight but without giving you you know context and why these are goals that are made and that kind of stuff it's kind of as you say pointless just absolutely I can go out and tell 100 people out there on the street to go and lose weight and not a single one of them will yeah Um, and so that's a completely wasted opportunity but rather having a conversation going you have this particular hormonal condition that for you will make putting on weight easier than the average person Mm. what what sustainable health changes can you make that are sustainable for you that are going to work that are you know realistic to achieve over time and we know that you know a focus on being the most healthy that you can Mm. is is much more likely to be successful yeah and I guess it's different to just blanket 
least telling everybody to lose weight versus, you know, maybe it's somebody who we know is having anovulatory cycles and is really motivated for pregnancy. That's obviously going to carry a different weight. Yeah, look, and that's probably the only time that that conversation has an impact. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's probably the only time when someone goes, here is my specific goal. I mean, what do they talk about the SMART goals? You know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely. So really that comes into the timely bit about the goal, which is... I'm going to focus on this looking at losing five kilos, Mm. which we all know short-term focused person can lose five kilos. It finds you again shortly thereafter, (laughs) but short-term you can. And we do know even those small amounts of weight change can improve ovulation. And often people who are trying to have a baby are motivated to do that because, you know, the other alternatives we have are significantly more invasive. Yeah, for sure. And I guess just on the other lifestyle factors that people can kind of work on in terms of managing the PCOS obviously increased body hair and acne and those sorts of things also come into play so would you like would you say simple things like hair removal where relevant to the individual come under that oh absolutely so for those women for whom that bothers them um for with regards to acne first you know as you know there are a myriad of topical treatments that are available in supermarkets and chemists um and most people have tried those your gp is a really good point of call Mm. looking um, for management of acne and there are lots of things that they can give you advice about putting on this skin um there are courses of low-dose antibiotics that can be effective for acne. Ultimately, many women with troublesome acne from polycystic ovarian syndrome end up seeing dermatologists and Mm. going on Roaccutane treatment, which can be highly effective, but obviously um, you need to have very effective contraception at the time, which I guess is a really good point to know that polycystic ovarian syndrome is not contraceptive. (laughs) No, definitely Um, don't rely on that. I guess with regard to hair patterns... I guess the point I'd like to make is that women don't actually have to do anything. Yes. Body hair is normal. Exactly. Okay. And so I guess there's nothing that you have to do about this. And I talk to people about doing things if it actually bothers you. But I recognise we live in a society in which there is this body ideal about what women should look like. And apparently that's bald. So so many women do. And there are lots and lots of really good cosmetic treatments that are available. I'd probably avoid shaving only because um, you would have seen as well lots and lots of complications with ingrown hairs and infected hair follicles and abscesses and stuff so shaving is is awful there's lots and lots of other things that are really effective many women that I see with significant hair issues with polycystic ovarian syndrome have Mm. found laser very effective yeah so it's probably most popular or waxing is very common as well yeah but again I have the point you only have to do something if it actually bothers you when you want to yeah if it's going to improve improve your quality of life or what yeah that's the only situation we would kind of yeah say that was relevant yeah in terms of I guess more medical or hormonal therapies what is available to manage PCOS um I guess the mainstay of treatment of PCOS is um hormonal suppression so most of the androgens come from the ovaries 
So looking at hormonal suppression to suppress ovarian function reduces the level of androgens, which reduces all of the complications of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So reduces the acne, reduces the hair growth, reduces the cardiovascular and diabetes risk. So the most commonly used is the combined oral contraceptive pill. And it's the mainstay of treatment because essentially it suppresses your ovarian function and suppresses the androgens, which results in treating all of the other complications. But, um, you know, there are a whole bunch of different oral contraceptive pills that people can try. There are some less expensive ones that are subsidised by the government on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. And there are a whole range of more expensive ones with a whole lot of different progesterone-type hormones in them, some of which are advertised for managing particularly androgen symptoms, acne mm. and hair loss. I guess my the general pathway and the general recommendations in the guidelines is try the inexpensive ones first because they are highly effective. You yeah. don't need to jump straight to the expensive ones, mm. which do have a different risk profile in addition to being more expensive. Knowing that it takes months for changes to be visible. Mm. So realistically um, for acne, but particularly for hair growth changes, you're looking at six to 12 months worth of treatment before you'd realistically expect to see any changes in the clinical appearance of hormonal function. Yeah. And so in one of our very early episodes, we talk about the normal menstrual cycle and we actually go into a bit of detail about how these you know, before you ovulate, you kind of recruit all these follicles yep. and that, you know, one of the layers of these immature follicles are what's actually making all the androgen. And obviously mm-hmm. in PCOS, when you've got heaps of follicles and they're all making androgen, that's yeah. what we're trying to avoid with this treatment. Yeah. So the androgens interfere with the hormones that are coming from your brain to grow to grow the follicles. And that's part that's behind why you get that particular ultrasound appearance mm. as well, is you get this whole cohort of follicles that are half grown, but mm. then the hormonal cycles are interfered with so they don't keep growing and they just sit there and that's how you can see it on the um, ultrasound. And yeah. so really the the combined pill suppresses that, which then results in the the impact yeah. of, of not growing all those follicles and not and the other thing it does is um, make your liver makes a protein that grabs a hold of hormones and inactivates them in your bloodstream and the pill increases the level of that protein as well Mm. so it sort of mops up the androgens that are Mm. in your bloodstream and takes them out of action as well yeah it's quite um quite complicated (laughs) it is physiology is really tricky but there is a, a very good reason why the pill is really recommended in the first instance yeah and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here so we can edit this question out if you like. Excellent. <laughs> um, I'm, I guess I'm wondering more for my own interest. Obviously, with the higher dose pills, like the kind of older ones, mm-hmm. the people tend to ovulate less yep. than with the lower dose, like 20 microgram yep. ones. Yep. Do we therefore prefer the slightly higher dose ones like Levlin over? Yeah, so um, the two that are on the PBS are both 30 microgram ethanol estradiol, so Mm. uh, commonly known as Levlon, which is the ethanol estradiol and levonogestrel. Um, And the other one's Norimin, which is the same estrogen component and norethisterone. So they're the two that are the less expensive ones, the ones subsidised by the government. And ovulation suppression's good with 30 micrograms. As you say, with 20 micrograms, the difference isn't huge, Mm. but women who are on the lower doses are more likely to get the ovulation escape and more likely to get irregular bleeding. Yeah. Okay, so I very rarely use those. Yes, because the the side effects are often worse than the problem that you're trying to treat. So I guess particularly um, 
you know, most women are able to tolerate one of those two less expensive ones. And because it is the estrogen component that actually helps suppress the androgens, and the estrogen component's the same in all of them. Yeah. You know, as a general rule, if you've got one that's less expensive that's going to do the same thing as the more expensive one, yeah. spend less. <laughs> Makes sense to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And certainly give it a try. But knowing that, you know, there is lots and lots of different different ones. And if, if one just doesn't suit you from the side effect profile, keep trying. Yeah. Keep trying because there's a whole bunch of different ones where the estrogen component's the same but the progesterone mm. component's different and you may find one that suits you. Yeah. Suits you well. So it is worth trying. I would say try any of them for three or four months though. Yeah. Because many side effects settle down after the first month or so. Yeah. And the Nuva ring, which is that ring that you put in the vagina for contraception it also has estrogen can you use it for the same kind of thing? yeah absolutely absolutely so the nuva ring is essentially the combined pill that you don't have to remember to take every day <laughs> but you do have to remember to remove once every three weeks absolutely you do yeah but that's what isn't that what the the alarm in your phone's for yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't live without Google Calendar. Oh, me neither. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, look, because so, it's the same thing. It's yeah. essentially a combined pill, but it's not a pill. It's yeah. a ring. So um, the downside about the Nuva ring is that it isn't subsidised by the government. So yeah. it's in that group of more expensive treatments. It's price comparable to all of the other pills that are yeah. more expensive. So for some women, that's really, really suitable. Yeah. And other, I guess, outside of contraceptives in the context of PCOS what other medical treatments are available um so the other treatment that's commonly talked about is the use of metformin Mm -hmm. which is an oral medication that's more commonly used for type 2 diabetes Um, and the role of metformin in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome is to add on to the lifestyle changes that we talked about before specifically targeted at helping managing weight and weight gain and looking at the metabolic outcomes so the pill was looking at the hormonal outcomes mm-hmm. and the hormonal symptoms and the downstream effects of that. The metform doesn't do anything for the hormones, but it helps manage the risks of diabetes and disordered glucose metabolism and managing the cardiovascular risk. And yeah. so women with polycystic ovarian syndrome who have other cardiovascular risk factors, so who have high blood pressure, who have cholesterol, who smoke, who have family history of heart disease uh, may find that metformin is recommended or women who are already carrying extra weight Mm. um, so women whose BMI and we know that BMI is a very crude tool for managing health but women with a BMI over 25 that's when we sort of consider whether that has a role for that woman metformin can have um, side effects particularly gastrointestinal side effects and often when people start it they can feel nausea or stomach upset so the recommendation is to start at a very low dose and start slowly so knowing this isn't being used to treat diabetes so you don't need to go to maximum doses very quickly and it's a balance between what you can tolerate from a side effect point of view knowing that the goal is to prevent metabolic complications later on in life got you and so the pill slash nuvering than metformin, anything else that people might be on? Um, So there is a whole lot of people who can't take the pill Mm -hmm. for various reasons. Um, In particular, women, once they get over the age of 35 or if they have those other heart health potential risks as well, the pill often isn't recommended. For women who can't take the pill, we would recommend the progesterone only 
contraceptives because mm. part one of the risks of polycystic ovarian syndrome when women aren't regularly having periods is a thing called endometrial hyperplasia, which is essentially the overgrowth of the endometrium or the lining of the uterus. And over time, if that doesn't shed and come away, can really progress to cancer. Mm. So women who of reproductive age who aren't regularly having periods need to be having some kind of endometrial protection. The combined oral contraceptive pill provides that, but if women can't take that yep. for whatever reason, a progesterone-only contraceptive would be yep. discussed with them. And commonly, women use the Mirena, the hormone IUD, mm -hmm. for that use, but any of the progesterone contraceptives, yep. so the implant, the injections, would, would be useful there. Yeah. So slightly different in that they're not necessarily stopping ovulation, but they're protecting you. Yeah. So, so the specific role there is that they're, they're not going, you know, most, many progesterone only contraceptives don't reliably suppress ovulation. So you're not getting that benefit that the pill specifically has, but you are getting the protection of the endometrium and reducing yep. your lifelong chances of cancer of the uterus. Any other medical therapies that we need to mention? No, most of the other medical therapies, um, so it's really around that annual checkup with your GP and then targeted on other risk factors that you have. So yeah. if you do get high blood pressure, managing your blood pressure. If you do get cholesterol problems, managing that through a combination of lifestyle and medications. Screening for anxiety and depressive disorders. And there's no good evidence about how often that should happen. So, so all of those things are going to be looked at as part of that annual checkup with the GP. Yeah. And is there any role for surgery or operations for people with PCOS? So there's no role for surgery with diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So um, surgery doesn't add anything at all. And, and there's no treatment option that for treating polycystic ovarian that surgery can offer as well. There is um, sort of an old school surgical treatment for fertility issues, and I think we'll probably talk about fertility in a little bit, but really that's very rarely used anymore. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess on the topic of fertility, why is it that PCOS affects fertility in some people? So, you know, we talked about it's the number one cause of female factor in fertility, and it's because of that disordered ovulation. In order to have a baby, you need to have an egg, you need to have a sperm, you need to have a tube or a test tube for those things to meet in, and you need to have a uterus for the baby to grow in. So really, polycystic ovarian syndrome impacts on the egg mm -hmm. and disordered ovulation and not consistently releasing an egg in order to fall pregnant. Yeah. And is it quite common then for people with PCOS to need assistance in falling pregnant? Well, PCOS is not contraceptive, yep. okay? And the majority <laughs> of women with PCOS will fall pregnant without any issues yep. because it's not absent ovulation. They mm -hmm. don't never ovulate. They just don't ovulate in that once a month pattern that women who have regular ovulation do. So they can ovulate at any time. Yep. Okay, so if you're not ready to have a baby, use contraception. Um, but And so the majority of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome do fall pregnant spontaneously, but it when people have difficulty with falling pregnant, and somewhere, you know, up to up to a half of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome may have some delays in fertility and get to the point where they're trying to have a baby and they can't have a baby and present for care, and that's when it gets diagnosed. Yeah. And so for people who are diagnosed with PCOS when they're younger, say, before they want to have babies, and then it comes to the morning to fall pregnant, you know, in general, we say have unprotected sex for a year, 
And if you're not having success, then seek help. Yep. Is that different for people with PCOS or like, do we start investigating any earlier? Or Yep. Yep. So I guess, you know, t- targeting what you say there, we say sort of have unprotected sex. We mean unprotected male to female sex with ejaculation inside the vagina ideally mid-cycle back to basics yeah absolutely and and look it's it's amazing how many times you actually have to speak to people about this is how you make a baby but I guess we I'd say to all people before you stop your contraception again see your GP um, particularly for women PCOS they'd likely to do some diabetes screening then because we do know for women with diabetes knowing about it and treating it before pregnancy significantly improves pregnancy outcomes so if you're ready to have a baby and haven't had that screening recently that would be an ideal time to do it um they would talk to you about folate for women with PCOS I'd say when you stop your contraception I'd chart your cycles Mm. and and really after six months if you haven't fallen pregnant again that's the time to start seeking help and start going is, is it PCOS? Is it something else that's causing delays in fertility? Because it's important to know that many, many couples, when they have some fertility, it's not a single isolated factor that yeah. causes the problem. And so when you do seek help to fall pregnant, the GP and then possibly the gynecologist or fertility specialist will talk to you about a whole bunch of other tests, looking mm. not just is there a problem with the ovulation, so making the egg, but are there sperm there to meet the egg when the egg does come? Is the tube working? Is it blocked? You know, is the uterus the right shape? Are there any problems like polyps or fibroids or other problems in the uterus that might be impacting as well before you look at treatment? So just moving along to some questions sent in from Instagram. The first one says, I have PCOS and my GP hasn't referred me to a gynecologist. Is that okay? Yeah, look, that's entirely appropriate. So like we talked about, the vast majority of care of polycystic ovarian syndrome is done with the woman in conjunction with her GP. And it's those lifelong risk factors about heart health and diabetes health. And certainly if a GP referred somebody to me for diabetes care, I'd <laughs> I'd very politely say, please go back to the person who knows a lot more about that than me. So the role of a gynecologist, sometimes we're the ones who make the ultimate diagnosis and, and that provide that early education for women about this is what it is this is where you need to go for here Um, or particularly regarding fertility management for women who already have a baby but the majority of the rest of the care is definitely best done in primary care and done by GPs so you know absolutely if your GP is comfortable and confident in managing it and you're managing all of the symptoms that you have all the things that you bother you bother you you don't need to go and see a gynecologist but certainly gynecologists do know quite a lot about this condition yeah and I think because of the name like it has Mm. ovarian in the name so you naturally go to that you know is this a gynae problem which it is but it may be more relevant for your specific situation to see an endocrinologist rather than a gynecologist absolutely so if if the biggest impact is on your sort of how your glucose metabolism is going absolutely an endocrinologist would have a role there if the issues are around the presentation of androgens and acne or hair growth a dermatologist might have a role Um, and your gp is that really good coordinator of being able to go this is what we can manage here this is what we need specialist help for and knowing who the right person is to seek that help yeah good gps worth their weight in gold (laughs) they are fabulous the next question says my sister has pcos should i see a doctor in case i have it too 
So, like we talk about, you've got a, a 50-50 chance. Um, so, 50% yes, but that also means 50% chance that you don't have PCOS. There's no specific screening test if you don't have symptoms, but certainly if you have irregular periods, if you have concerns over acne, concerns over over hair growth that you think is disproportionate to what it should be, then it would be worth seeing your GP and going, let's talk about this. Because of those other factors, if you do diagnose it early, you can get onto that prevention model of staying and being healthy. Yeah. Now, the next one says, I was diagnosed with PCOS when I was in my early 20s. I was put on the pill and everything seemed okay, but now I'm 35. I'm trying to start a family with my partner and we've had to go down the IVF road. Could something have been done earlier to actually treat my PCOS instead of masking the symptoms with the pill to avoid this happening to me now? That's a big question, I know. That is a big question. Um, So I guess like we talked about, the pill isn't masking the symptoms. The pill's actively treating the symptoms. So the pill is actively treating the excessive androgens, um, particularly treating the other risks, so the heart risks and the diabetes risks, in addition to managing the clinical signs. So the pill isn't masking, it's actively treating the condition. There's no medication that you could have got in younger life that would cure PCOS. So PCOS is a chronic condition that we think is almost certainly got significant genetic implications so the PCOS would have been there now regardless of whether you'd had those years on the pill or not but there's certainly a very real chance that you might have way more than you currently do may have bigger problems in terms of heart health or diabetes health all of which which impact on pregnancy as well so it's apart from that you're at the stage where the PCOS is you know and the ovulation dysfunction that's coming from the PCOS is what's probably causing the biggest issue and apart from lifestyle changes there's nothing else that you could have done Mm. prior to now to change what was happening now yeah and I don't know if this happens much but would you talk to people in this kind of situation ever about like egg freezing when they're younger or it's I guess it's really hard to yeah look I'm I'm not a fertility subspecialist so I'm not the right person to talk to about where egg freezing is at the moment it's an area there's lots of research and lots and lots of change so I know you know, five years ago, there were no babies born from egg freezing. And now that that's changing rapidly as the technology is changing rapidly, I think egg freezing is different. It's more about social determinants and more about where people are at in their lives rather than being a specific thing for polycystic ovarian syndrome. We know that it's an expensive invasive procedure without guarantees so it's something that if people are interested in they should discuss specifically with the local fertility subspecialist about what the risks and benefits are and what the likely success rates are and what their alternatives are in terms of managing their fertility over time yeah okay Next question just says, source to be dramatic, but why does PCOS have to exist? I think we've kind of answered that a bit. (laughs) Uh, We don't know. Look, we don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I suspect that that question comes from a place of frustration going, you know, I'm I'm having to deal with and manage all of these things and and really that's difficult and that's something that's there on a daily basis and, and that's challenging and I think I can have a lot of empathy that having to think about it every day and mm. having to be aware of your health and well-being every day. None of us do 
very well. As a genetic thing, there's got to be some evolutionary reason, <laughs> some evolutionary time at which women with PCOS are advantaged. I don't know what it is yet, but there's got to be some way yeah. because evolution wouldn't have made it happen otherwise. Exactly. Um, you've given a very good answer to a very <laughs> vague question, I feel, with that one. <laughs> this one just says, please myth bust that PCOS equals infertility. Yep. So, look, as we've talked about, the majority of women with PCOS fall pregnant spontaneously. Um, it is a myth that PCOS makes you infertile. So, please, if you don't want to have a baby, use <laughs> contraception. Yeah. Um, and, but, but we do know that, that for some women it can make it more challenging to have a baby so if you have been trying for six months and you haven't fallen pregnant seek help yeah there are effective treatments that are available last question we'll probably have time for um my friend and i both have pcos i really struggle with my weight but she's thin why does this happen it makes it hard for people to believe that my pcos is what makes it harder for me to lose weight yeah, so the new guideline addresses this in a way. Um, partly we don't have a lot of research and don't have a lot of evidence about why PCOS presents differently in different women. And even in the same family, you can have two sisters who've got PCOS who it, it looks different to them. So in the new guideline, there's a recommendation that there's four different appearances of PCOS so to speak and they recommend using those in in there as a research tool to go why is PCOS different for different women and it's looking at women who've the main issue is the androgen excess so the acne in the hair women for whom the issue is the ovulation dysfunction women who it's the ultrasound picture and Mm. they've subdivided it up to go PCOS is not a one-size-fits-all condition it's different for different women and how does it your version of PCOS will affect you and your body differently. Yeah. And I think that's been kind of the overarching message today that it, there is so much variability. It's different for everyone. And that's true for diagnosis, treatment, what symptoms you have. And, and life stage as well. So yeah, where your priorities lie. For sure. Is there anything that we've not covered or anything else you think is relevant to mention? No, I guess just to know it's common. Um, Many of the challenges are easily treatable and available and knowing about it and taking responsibility and taking charge of your own health and going, this is who I am, this is how my body is, these are things that I am at a greater chance of, lesser chance of and and I'm I'm then in control or I have choices about how I manage that and really taking ownership back of your health and your well-being and going, this is my body that I live in and it's a great body and it does all these amazing things and this is how I can best look after my body. It's probably that really healthy perspective. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been really helpful and I'm sure all our listeners will get a lot from that. So thank you once again for giving up your afternoon to be with us. Thanks a lot, Hannah. (laughs) See ya. Bye. You to you, you to me, you to us is a podcast for general discussion only. Nothing we talk about should be taken as personal medical advice and it does not substitute information or instructions given to you by your own doctor. If the podcast raises any questions or concerns for you, please see your GP, sexual health or family planning clinic. For general discussion, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please stop trusting strangers on the internet with your health. This podcast is a production of Simo Interactive, home of the My Millennial Money podcast.